वेलकम टू सिंटॉक द सिंटॉक इज अराउंड द टेबल टुडे डिस्कस द डायनामिक्स ऑफ डोमिनेंस विल थिंक अबाउट द प्रोसेसेस इंटरेक्शंस एंड द अजम्पशंस दैट लीड टू डोमिनेंस इन सोशल सिस्टम्स टू हायरार्कीज ऑलवेज इमर्ज व्हाट मेक्स एन एनिमल और एन एजेंट डोमिनेंट what role do factors like the structure of the game cooperation manipulation and aggression play do non-human primates such as chimpanzees also play politics does dominance emerge even if there is no pre-existing social order would there always be the powerful and the powerless in the world can leadership and dominance be reversed and what is the long term future of winning and losing consistently we are pleased and privileged to have three sin talkers with us here today professor satish deshpande he started out as a student of economics and now teaches sociology at university of delhi dr ankur a kulkarni He specializes in game theory, stochastic control, and information theory. He is from IIT Bombay. And Professor Meva Singh, he is an ecologist and an animal behaviorist. He is from University of Mysore. So Meva, why don't we set the ball rolling with you? Um, maybe in the world of animals, and see whether there are hierarchies and dominant systems even there. And would it be fair to start with a statement that all social systems are dominant systems in some shape or form? Do groups and dominance and hierarchies go together? Where are you on that? Where is where is the current state of the art literature on that? And how do we begin to understand this general question and we'll open some flanks and then tie them all up together as we go you see if, if you see in nature hmm. the life of any animal basically revolves around two things hmm. animal has to find food hmm. and then an animal has to find a mate right and both of these resources in nature are always limited <laughs> you never have super abundance of food you never have super abundance of mates hmm. so since these basic resources in nature are limited it is obvious that the you know animals have to compete with each other mm. there are certain animal species which live so called so called solitary lives there is nothing solitary mm. i mean if they are sexually reproducing organisms male and female have to mate sometime sure if they are like mammals for example a mother has to raise the young for quite some time so because she lactates so there are social interactions always sure. but most of the animal species they live in social groups mm-hmm. so since the basic resources are limited in nature the animals have to compete hmm. there can be several kinds of competitions some competition we call is a scramble competition hmm. that each time they fight for a resource hmm. so the outcome is determined each time so there is randomness to a random right but most of the competitions in nature are what we call is contest competition that they occasionally fight with each other but they establish a some kind of a hierarchical system so there's a pecking order established right? yes an order is established so that they don't have to see any kind of uh, escalated aggression is hmm. costly for every animal <laughs> you may be very you know the you know strong animal as compared to the other but there is always a risk of injury 
So all animals would avoid fighting. So even if you have a high chance of winning, you have some chance of injury some, and you have to expend energy. So in order to avoid this, what happens in nature is that all organisms which live in social groups, mm-hmm. they would immediately establish a hierarchical system. Mm-hmm. So always group living animals, you would always find them in a hierarchical system. There could be anything from insect societies to to chimpanzee societies through you know uh, herbivores or carnivores or whatever you see carnivores which are social living all of the all of all organisms you would see that there is a kind of a dominant system there is a hierarchical social system and meva will make this more detail later but if we just touch upon it for a brief while that very initial hierarchy is it random is it just a matter of chance that somebody happened to be slightly higher up in the pecking order or below or no, are, there are there no, factors which there are somewhat no such deterministic the system as uh, you know to begin with because there is already an established social order mm-hmm. so all new entrants for example say what we call the juveniles or subadult animals mm-hmm. they are always ent- entering into a hierarchical system now the question would come for example we have done it several times and other people mm-hmm. that you take randomly some animals and put them together mm-hmm. which are not in an already existing social system right there immediately a social system a hierarchical system would emerge mm-hmm. and that i would come to probably later on when we talk about what determines dominance right so that would be probably temperament and stuff like this but very quickly a hierarchical system would emerge right right so right. even uh, the this uh, the whole hierarchical system was actually seen more than 100 years ago mm-hmm. in uh, piglets piglets so in uh, you know the female has several pigs mm. the the frontal uh, teeth of uh, females produce more milk than the rare ones so, so these piglets order. who are <laughs> siblings they immediately start competing with each, each other to have access to the frontal teeth right and within couple of hours actually you can see a hierarchical system emerging that's very interesting so it is it is very simply a very very natural system in uh, in the, in the animal world that they have to live in a hierarchical system why don't we pick on that word uh, satish how natural is hierarchy in the more human kind of context and i know there's always this nature culture issue that one keeps running into uh, yes but uh, i think a way of linking to what uh, meva has been saying right is to say that in amongst humans hierarchy is not natural but is naturalized right tends to get naturalized but so when it, you say not natural you mean that in a fairly strict sense because i mean we are animals after all and we, you know we yes. may have become a cultured over many centuries and millennia yes yes but uh, the time when we left behind the natural causes of dominance such as muscle power height or the you know these very natural forms uh, right. which would account for the dominance of the larger man right Uh, we have left those behind thousands of years ago and currently the reasons for our dominance their foundation is to be found in culture mm-hmm. not in nature so you mean social order social, social structure order, yes. stuff like in that in ideologies what we like to call ideologies or systems of belief mm-hmm. and that is what makes uh, dominance in human society unique it's one of the two things that in my opinion makes it unique with the other being uh, the other being its changeability <laughs> right uh, and which in a sense serves to establish the fact that it is not really based on any genetic or natural order mm-hmm. because orders change human orders of dominance change they mm-hmm. change because of ideologies uh, being countered by other ideologies they change for a variety of reasons but uh, amongst humans the order of dominance is always subject to change and do you find this tendency of ideology surprising or it's it's fairly easy to grasp in your head this tendency to 
lead to hierarchies, this tendency to lead to dominant systems, this tendency for it to kind of go from one phase to another, one generation to another in a reasonably seamless manner? Uh, it's both uh, surprising and not surprising. It's not surprising to the extent that it has always been found in history. Mm-hmm. So when something is invariably present, historically mm-hmm. speaking, mm-hmm. you tend to say that it is not surprising. You expect it, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, on the other hand, given that uh, amongst humans, strictly speaking, hierarchies tend to be arbitrary. Uh, that's the sense in which I say cultural. Sure. Uh, that's the sense in which they are surprising. Right. right. And uh, both things are true. You know, at the same time. But what we have a real talent for is in naturalizing cultural states of hierarchy or cultural states of dominance. Uh, because there are human ideologies that can become invisible. So you feel that a given hierarchy is simply the way things are. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Rather mm-hmm. than the way they have been engineered to be. Mm-hmm. The way in which they have been constructed. Mm-hmm. So most human societies or social relationships are constructed in the sense that they are made by humans, shaped right. by humans. They're conventional, a matter right. of convention. Right. But uh, the most durable ones of these tend to make themselves invisible as arbitrary systems. Such so, as what? Like what so they naturalize. So for example, that um, one of our oldest ideologies, patriarchy, right. that women are inferior to men. Now this gets... T- almost biologized, whereas today there is absolutely no biological reason for the dominance of males uh, to continue over over. But uh, is that females. the case in animal kingdom? Sure. I know there are different species sure, there and, are so differences and so on and so forth. In, uh, see, this is, uh, Again, one has to be very careful about this natural versus naturalizing question exactly, which is pointing see, out. This, this has been a controversy for such a long time between you know biologists and social scientists Sure, you know, we do recognize the level of intelligence in humans. Mm. It's so high mm. that you cannot simply translate the animal behavior into human behavior. Sure. The humans think. They sure. construct their social systems. But the basic point is that the basic elements of this human social system, they already exist in nature. But in, And there are near-human primates, right? So one In chimpanzees, for example, see, in 1982, when uh, Franz de Waal mm. published this famous book called The Chimpanzee Politics, yeah. <laughs> you know, the four basic tenets of chimpanzee politics mm. are the four basic tenets of human politics. Mm-hmm. You know, the first one, striving for status. Mm. The chimpanzees are always doing it in very subtle ways, mm. and the humans do. Mm. And the second thing, which we routinely see even in monkeys, in chimpanzees, very old, mm. is the formation of alliances and coalitions. Mm. Again, in human politics, human societies, they mm. are based on coalitions and uh, alliances. Then the third thing is acts of deception. Mm. The chimpanzees make enormous acts of deception. So manipulation, deception. Yeah, and the fourth thing is signals. that after hostility or after agonistic interactions throughout the animal world, you would see there are steps towards reconciliation. The chimpanzees do. They fight with each other. You would see injuries. But within seconds, they start hugging each other because reconciliation is common practice in primates. So if you look at this, these are typical. We are not saying that you directly translate from apes to or primates to human beings. But the point is simply this, that the basic elements which we see. So it is not, I totally, you know, not that much don't agree with you that it is a social system which is naturalized. No, in the natural system itself, the element, the, the elements do exist. But there are obviously, you know, the differences because we have such a higher level of intelligence and we have started creating social systems because one thing which we have different in humans, that animal species, 
even today however animal species may be evolved they are living under so called ecological controls right you know these ants right the queen ant once the rain comes she has to fly right mate because she is not specialized to make a nest right the whole colony would die if she doesn't right. the rain comes and she digs up a little bit of place lays the eggs the workers develop and they make the colony otherwise the whole colony would die right, right. so if you look at packs of wild dogs or tigers or monkeys that there are direct natural ecological controls That's and the humans so are sort of, of free of ecology hmm. the hmm. humans are living in sort of ecological release but that does not mean that the templates have disappeared sure sure you know the templates which are that so the same mammalian so many behaviors of ours are typical mammalian behaviors hmm. so many behaviors in us are typical primate behaviors hmm. so the templates continue to exist and continue to shape our behavior patterns whether they are social interactions whether they are culture itself is an adaptation that's interesting culture itself is a product of biological evolution but it has acquired its own motor sure no, the interesting I mean, question it has that, its own motor so yeah. it it runs no we'll get we'll get to that meva so you know there are interesting ideas there on there ankur about you know ideas of deception manipulation uh if we th- if you we were to think of some of these things somewhat abstractly as a game uh and maybe we think of structure of the game how do some of these questions resonate with you uh, why do dominant systems emerge when do they emerge are there initial conditions that lead to it is there a way of theorizing about it in a manner without necessarily uh getting into this question of nature culture right so there is a see the one thing that uh, immediately comes to my mind is this uh, that the type of uh, do- what you are calling as dominant system emerging is is a is a manifestation of one kind of an equilibrium of a game mm-hmm. so and that dominant system sustaining is is a case of equilibrium selection mm-hmm. what we call equilibrium selection in game theory so what's happening here is that i'll can explain this better with an example so you sure. consider the example of a say a, uh, a game in which happen in which players play sequentially mm-hmm. what this game is called kurno oligopoly Okay the so game So you're distinguishing separating it from a simultaneous game I'm separating it from a simultaneous game a simultaneous in a simultaneous game games uh, players would play uh, have to make moves simultaneously as if they are you know held up in solitary confinement and now they have to just decide what to do whereas in a sequential game a player one of the players plays first the second player observes what has been played by the first player and then has to respond to that, that and what is be, the competition for here for price for quantity the, for yeah so in in the case of kurno oligopoly what they are trying to decide is the quantity of production of a, of some homogeneous good sure. say like electricity or wheat or something that is indistinguishable across the uh, two producers so the player one decides his quantity level the pro- objective of each player is to make as much profit as possible hmm. the second player now decides his quantity level Hmm. they are coupled because uh, because the price in the ma- that they would see in the market that the that the quantity would sell for will depend on the net quantity Overall produced quantity. by yes. by both yes now here two questions are i see the second player has seen what the first player has produced it seems that what he would do is look at his look at what the first player has done and then do what what is what is his best response to that quantity level however so this leads to one kind of an equilibrium then in that equilibrium what happens is that the first player decides a quantity taking into account what the best response of the second player is going to be right. to his quantity right this leads to one equilibrium in this case you may say that the first player is in in some sense dominating the second player because he is able to impose on him a decision 
that the second player has to then follow so is is this a regress enough result that there yes. is some kind of a first mover advantage uh, yes there is there is in fact you can show this that uh, that if the second player has a unique response there is in fact a first mover advantage advantage right. to the uh, to the person who's moving first relative to both moving simultaneously this can be uh, this can be shown the however the, the tricky thing so this leads to as i said one equilibrium however there is another equilibrium here in which the second player may say i disregard this information the information I, of the first move i i ignore the fact that you have already declared so and so level and i will pretend as if i have not even seen it sure and this so then you go back and analyze this uh, this situation in which the second player is now not responding with his best response but is responding blind uh, is blind to that to the quantity that the first player has said mm-hmm. so then you ask okay what is the equilibrium in this case mm-hmm. this in this case it turns out that it is as good as the two players having played simultaneously mm-hmm. because the second player has disregarded this additional information that has come mm-hmm. so that leads to another equilibrium but what happens here is that in the, in this equilibrium the second player mm-hmm. who is supposed to have played sep- second uh, in the uh, later is able to now ex- extract rents from the first player he is effectively issuing a uh, a threat to he is saying do whatever you want i am going to produce this quantity mm-hmm. i am he is saying i i don't care what you what you produce my quantity is going uh, is is going to be there so he is is playing independently But, of the because eventually you are solving for some kind of payoff in any of these games right yeah. uh, ankur so yeah. you would just solve for a certain price for the overall quantity produced right, so right. so there's a, the payoff involved is profit minus cost Correct. so the profit would depend on the price that would emerge which is the sure. which will depend on the net quantity produced sure minus the cost of individual costs of production Sure. So, uh, so what is happening here is the. So, how do we translate the simultaneous uh, sequential thing into a more general context? And is is there a way of saying when dominant systems emerge? Yeah. Does so it have to do with the nature of the game? Yeah. So it effectively comes down to whether the second acting player is going to make uh, is is uh, is taking into account the move of the first. Is is taking into account this additional information, or is he going to say, I'm I I don't care. I I I will act as if as if I was oblivious to your action. How much of this uh, resonates with you uh, Satish is how much of this is interactive how much of this is about taking signals from whoever your combatant/subordinate/leader or whatever you know one can pick one's words but a lot of these are dyadic interactions that two two parties three parties four parties um so does does this resonate with you in a more sociological social system context no absolutely absolutely all human forms of domination are also forms of communication mm. and they re- they require communication in the sense in which uh, ankur is speaking it's just that this communication has the possibility of being uh, ritualized of being patterned in mm. certain ways mm. uh, where those patterns acquire a lot of uh, force and durability Uh, such as custom such as uh, all kinds of belief systems that uh, become very uh, rooted in society so in ankur second example you give a non conventional non pattern response in a way i mean you kind of ignore the first signal why is that difficult to do um why is it difficult to not give a non ritualized uh, that's because to give part, a non ritualized response part of the uh, what would be the equivalent of the first move hmm. part of the first move in in the context of domination is to in a sense pre shape the possible moves of the other 
right. uh, pre-shape the possibilities of resistance from the dominated. Right. So in a sense, one might say that, um, going back to what um, Meva was saying earlier, the starting point, as he said, for um, emergence of dominance and so on in, in the animal world is scarcity mm -hmm. and co therefore competition. Mm -hmm. Now, in the human world for some time, mm -hmm. at least half a century, mm -hmm. uh, we have managed to establish that scarcity is now no longer natural. So, for example, the world can produce more than enough food for all the entire population of the world. And in, there is enough And wealth. when you say more than half a century, you mean the immediate preceding half a century yes, from, from yes, today? Yes. Sure. So okay. from about the 1960s onwards, sure, 1970s sure. onwards, it has been true that it is um, scarcity, scarcity is, is not the prime is not natural. factor. Um, mm. So this is, uh, and therefore that uh, even in terms of a very rough sense of wealth, there is enough, it, uh, the possibility of producing enough so that everybody has a decent life. Hmm. objectively exists. Hmm. The fact however, that, yeah, however, however, yes. Right. Uh, right. In the human world, something being objectively true is never sufficient. Right. And often it is not even necessary uh, for, <laughs> for uh, systems of domination to come about. So our systems of domination are rooted in culture. I would still say that. Hmm. Uh, whatever support they may receive from material circumstances and so on, uh, their, uh, their, the cement that holds them together uh, has to be cultural, has to be ideological. So what's the equivalent of a, of a first move or the first mover in these kind of contexts? Because we're there in some kind of systemic lock-in, some kind of systemic yes. arrangement, not yes. necessarily preordained or pre-designed, but it might yes. be just a default that one starts with. Yes, uh, this, is, this is a problem. Hmm. Uh, and in history, in human history, the problem is that there is never any real beginning. <laughs> hmm? Because there is always already something... You don't start games. Yeah. I mean, there's there never are, a clean there's slate. There's a game going yeah. on all the time. So because there is no clean slate, you're always working with residues hmm. of the past. Hmm. But the interesting thing about human forms of domination, that's why I mentioned changeability, hmm. is that one of the most powerful ideologies of modern times, hmm. by modern times I mean, say, the last 300 years, hmm. is the ideology of equality. Mm -hmm. The idea, no matter what the reality, mm -hmm. the idea that one human being is equal to another mm -hmm. is a very radical idea. So along with the ideologies of domination, which we have had for centuries, we also have this ideology of equality. So then there is a, a, a contest um, between these ideologies. And then there is a contest for persuading people for, um, you know, in, in a sense, competing for credibility competing for um, faith in, in different kinds of systems of belief. Hmm, hmm. Because unlike some of these relatively more game-theoretic situations, the number of responses are not finite, right, in some of these social dynamics. I mean, you know, when we lay out games well, you can say up or down, you can say heads or tails, you can say more or less, so you can start or stop. Um, but how does one deal with situations, Ankur, where there's a wide range of options possible may not necessarily be able to enumerate them to begin with, if you know what I mean. And yeah. is there a notion of these ongoing games, the point that Satish spoke about, where games don't really start from a clean slate but are always going on with yeah. changing rules and presuppositions? Right. So for the first question, yes, there is that's uh, that has been amply handled uh, mathematically. So that is not, uh, that, that's that's not so much of an issue that, that there is a, there may be a continuum of strategies and so on. In fact, the game that I mentioned, mm -hmm. the Kurno Oligopoly, that is, does have a continuum of 
strategies there what seems to be happening is this thing that that somehow uh, all the other things that satish is mentioning uh, you know customs culture etc they are serving to in the long run uh, make one equilibrium more frequent than another equilibrium mm-hmm. so it is just that one equilibrium which is in which one one party dominates the other is is turning out to be the one that we are seeing in practice mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. The, um, game theory is 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 uh, intends to be a mathematical science that will try to explain all enumerate all the possible behaviors that can emerge it does not really profess that it will be able to predict one particular behavior sure. however if you give me some additional uh, information i can tell you wh- wh- which one is more reasonable than the other and it seems like the you know there is something here which is Uh, making one equilibrium more uh, more likely as for a second question yes there is a notion of repeated and uh, repeated games and it may well be the case i mean i one would have to analyze this it may well be the case that uh, you know the, there are that the sort of games that we are seeing here have that have a tendency that the initial condition that you start from is the one that uh, uh, that you gravitate towards uh, as in the equilibrium So right. that could be the case though I don't know of a formal way of putting it. And you know this. there's dominance and there's dominance right so there may be relatively more linear kind of systems and maybe there may be despotic systems Yeah I I would come to that but yes. uh, just a little bit more on uh, what Ankur yes. and Satish were talking about hmm. you see the game theory for example hmm. we try to understand animal behavior through game theory also mm-hmm. it is the same thing you have an actor you have a responder you have several individuals participating mm-hmm. and they are playing the same kind of games mm-hmm. the major difference which i see which i totally agree with you and uh, with ankur that when humans are playing games hmm. they are supposed to be acting rationally so they are making responses which are rational now in animals we don't say that they are making rational responses is rationality a core assumption for you yeah yes it yes. is yes okay. but so in animal what we say <laughs> that it is not an rational response it is a strategy the world which we use for game theory so deception manipulation it's a strategy yeah, so a strategy as he said this these rational acts can change the strategy does not change in our language we say the strategy does not mutate so <laughs> what happens to that strategy is so there is a given strategy mm-hmm. so either it's weeded out or it is fabled yet to take take for example dove hawk or whichever game theory you know prisoner's dilemma you want to take any any of these examples so a strategy is there either the strategy gets weeded out through natural selection and what would be the example of a strategy in in a natural oh a number of strategies take dove hawk only for example say if if there is a hawk appearing another one is a hawk sure. okay then you have in in your language v over 2 minus c over 2 so you have benefit over 2 minus cost over 2 sure but if it if the hawk goes and there is a dove right. then the hawk takes all right if it is a dove which goes and there is a hawk it's zero correct but if you it is a dove we find the dove is v over 2 you take half the benefit for example correct So what happens in same similar thing happens in evolution, but certain strategies get fixed, mm. others get weeded out. Mm. So rather than equilibrium, the world which we would use is we call it evolutionarily stable strategy. We mm. call it ESS. ESS. Mm. So same thing of your equilibrium becomes ESS for us. So it is the same thing which is happening in the animal world. Mm. In the natural world, exactly same thing is going on. It's the the processes are similar which are going on. and coming back to this uh, so these ESSs are relatively stable over long periods of time they are relatively stable unless the environmental conditions change or the game conditions change because once the game conditions change then that strategy may not be useful anymore so these hierarchical systems may what do they get reversed do they change dramatically 
what see it's a not a system individuals ranks can change see system is a very different thing mm. see the system said it is not that the animals you simply say that it is a hierarchical system right right so right. we actually classify we call values it and you know purely despotic system then we have tolerant system then the third grade we call relax relaxed the fourth grade we call egalitarian right so it is not <laughs> say there is a linearity say i have done lot of work on this for example measurement of uh, dominance hierarchy in terms of linearity where linearity would range from 0 to 1 mm-hmm. a zero would be a totally egalitarian system one will be a totally despotic system mm-hmm. but mm-hmm. the values always range in between 0 and 1 so we have a full mathematics you know our formula developed mm-hmm. and we ultimately reach h is equal to is a single single value mm-hmm. it was actually done in 1952 by a person called hyman landau but i have modified this because Landau's. there are lots of problems in landau index so i have modified those and we reach now a value of 0 to 1 which and we try to for each society now i know for example the bonnet monkey society has this much hierarchy mm-hmm. and the lion-tailed monkeys are more relaxed or this societies the rhesus monkeys of north india are almost despotic mm. so for each society we try to determine this degree of linearity and and when when you say this this is obviously species as well as context specific it has to do something with the environment very little with context specificity context specificity comes only when there is a, con- a scramble competition right when there is a competition every time right. but these social systems get established and they are fairly stable they are fairly stable and they become sort of species specific so much so that we start classifying the species as despotic as uh, tolerant as uh, relaxed as uh, by and large egalitarian so if you were to move these despotic north indian monkeys to south india they would still remain that no this has nothing to do they won't change the environment they are there like this and as a matter of fact most of these studies to begin with hmm. were done in captive groups in america and uh, europe right. the monkeys which were taken from here right right so they they did not become egalitarian there and <laughs> so they remain the same <laughs> Right, right. But the systems right. are like you see any society. You can simply, you know, you can determine actually the level of uh, linearity. So these four are terms used from totally egalitarian to totally despotic. But I can actually assign a number hmm. on hmm. on uh, the scale of zero to one. What is the number? And which we do for mo- most of the species which we study, hmm. we assign this number. Hmm. More you are towards one, more hmm. despotic the society is. Hmm. More you are towards zero. more egalitarian a social system is mm-hmm. let's bring in the notion of power um satish and does this question invariably get linked to the question of power does it have to do with accumulating power exercising power um or or there are other other factors at work when we talk of hierarchical systems or dominant systems Absolutely, I think uh, power and dominance are very closely related. Because what would power be for? Like, for example, if we talk of situations, or as as you were pointing out a little while ago, when there's no more scarcity, then the need to accumulate power is. Do you know what I mean? Like, why would? Because th- there is also a need, utilitarian side to this entire business, right? Where because there's scarcity, there is a benefit of monopolizing resources, and so on and so forth. So why would dominant systems stay? uh that way when scarcity for example as just just test case go away because power generates a kind of inertia if i am in power mm-hmm. over my society then certain consequences follow from that that means that i am able to do certain things to others in my society which make it difficult for my power to be taken away for uh, my dominance to be changed 
So there is a tendency towards stability, towards uh, once a system has become credible, socially credible, it tends to become stable. But the beauty of the so uh, even human, if the initial conditions would lead to that dominant system emerging goes away, the 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 structure could still is is uh, can be can be stable because uh, as I keep saying, we are cultural beings. Mm-hmm. and our belief systems govern what we say you're talking about power now this is what is being theorized upon today mm-hmm. um i'm today meaning in the last 30 years or so sure that amongst humans you can have systems of power over others mm-hmm. where the agency of the dominated itself is recruited in the interests of the dominator so i convince you that serving me is the purpose is of your, your life interest? yeah is the purpose of your life so that is what human beings are able to do we are able to uh, collectively that is we are able to produce ideologies which and is that is produce that, subjects of a particular kind that's beautiful know? and is that an entirely sinister argument or there is some advantages to being subordinated well which is it's, it's, it's that, i understand it's like a funnily framed question but you get the point yes yes this is the shock value that people like nietzsche or foucault Right. had when they suggested that uh, what is called the uh, enlightenment everything that is considered good about modern man is a one sided picture mm. that along with this face the humanist face of mm. modernity mm. there is the other face the face of disciplinary society mm. where the forms of power which elicit subjection which elicit so to speak uh, subordination from um through the agency of this of the dominated are uh, also get institutionalized so modern society is the society of the school the workshop the army and countless other institutions the prison the clinic prison and so on where um you in 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 effect uh create subjects who through their own agency contribute towards domination so power is no longer preventing somebody from doing something mm-hmm. that has no, that is now considered uh, too partial a definition of so it's power it's not just negative power it's not right. just prohibitive yes, power it's positive power where it elicits from you um say the ideology of nationalism any successful ideology elicits from the agent agent um altruistic behavior in behavior. return in return for that's the thing it's altruism it is an, it's in, in <laughs> economic it. terms it would be a transfer payment i mean it's 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 there's no exchange <laughs> right hmm. so for for its own sake you you lay down your life for the country you don't so the very idea if in today's climate you say that a, uh, an army jawan gets a salary hmm. people get offended hmm. if, if even if you say that because sure. the figure of the you know the sure. soldier is sure. who is is that of the it's primarily yes, is that of the patriot yeah. right. who is not thinking about material terms right whose commitment to the nation is beyond all material calculation right, right. or your devotion devotion to the family to the mother to your religion there are any number of such uh, focuses foci of of devotion whose very foundation is to say that they are beyond rational calculation that they are beyond self interest and is there a counter to this foucauldian power framework at all because it sounds at some level it sounds very cynical yes that is uh, that is level. very very bleak and in fact that is what there has been a reaction to 
uh, our best bet is history and you know the obviously the response cannot be entirely aesthetic so you cannot just like yes. or not like something yes. just because yes. it doesn't feel or go- feels good but that Ye- that being yes. aside the point yes but the best repost is that there is history hmm. things have happened uh, the slaves did rise in revolt against slave owners uh the poor in various historical situations the powerless have in fact risen against uh, against their oppressors so systems of power which felt as though they would last forever have in fact been overthrown and that gives us hope hmm. what are the strategies that work best for overthrowing power so in this case i think the uh, the when you're talking of overthrowing power we are, what we are again trying to do is move from one equilibrium to another to, another, equi- to change uh, the uh, the order essentially or, uh, you if you look at the second equilibrium that i was speaking about in which the second acting player disregards what the first acting player has done mm. what that player is uh, is doing is putting up a resistance mm-hmm. he's saying i don't care about what uh, w- what you have to say i will do what i want to do so, so in this should, case should, the leader do they do they prey upon the predictability of the subordinate is it about being unpredictable and non competitable what 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 exactly yeah so you can uh, you can use this sort of toy example to model, to explain different things so mm-hmm. here it could be that there is a there is a the follower or the second acting player he's sure. he is in fact uh, using his irrationality to extract rents from the first player that's a great point right he's trying to be he's trying to he claims to be acting he or he threatens to act irrationally um threatens to disregard information uh, and therefore makes the the first acting player fall in line right but you can also give it a positive spin and say well this is a case of slaves uh, not taking orders from their masters and revolting against the master and so on. that's another way of giving it another spin one of the other things that is important in this is this assumption that the the first acting player should be able to predict what the second acting player will be able to do mm-hmm. is or is capable of doing so he sh- it the act the the, stra- the so the response of the second acting player should be computable at the first acting player's end mm-hmm. 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 which means that the second acting player should have no private information which the first acting player is not private to Hmm. so there should be nothing that the second acting player should have up his sleeve which hmm. the first acting player will not know hmm. Hmm. now But circumstances if they you know change the game in such a way that now there is this secret element that the second acting player has that they can now use then it means that the first acting player will now no more be able to impose a particular uh, uh, or ex- elicit a particular type of response you know in a consistent way so that And, and 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 you know outside of some of these toy cases what could an example of uh, strategically important private information be strategically important private information for example could be where your nuclear weapons are hidden <laughs> okay is <laughs> <laughs> something as simple as that right sure. so uh, there are uh, so we can try to explain how tiny countries armed with nuclear weapons can play rogue in the world uh, why why they can be yeah why they can subsist for so long why yeah, they can be yeah why they because they essentially feed off the irrationality of right by by giving the impression of being unpredictable irrational or irrational in the sense of not in the english sense in the in the game theory sense in the, sure. so, and not not always consistently rational hmm. uh, so that is, by giving that impression they basically make everyone uh, else follow what they have to do 
is there unpredictability in some of these do you, do you encounter that in a meaningful enough way meaningful enough way in, in see, animal behavior see, once again now coming back to like what you asked satish to begin with mm. what do the subordinates get yeah i mean that's exactly like see, what for we are very clear about it. So we are very clear about happily. it that okay you have several advantages of being dominant but there are several compensations of remaining subordinate advantages of being subordinated compensations such as first of all for example you are a member of a group suppose you were to leave become a solitary monkey or a solitary wild dog or uh, whatever either you are a predator or you are a prey suppose you are a subordinate individual and you leave the group you get salary and you either get killed or you are not <laughs> able to make a kill because the dogs or wolves are pack hunting animals alone you cannot hunt you would die or if you are a prey animal alone you would die so there is a benefit of living in a group there is a simple protection against predators sure or easier to get food when there uh, you know several individuals cooperate and a number of other things for example is what we call age graded changes mm-hmm. in societies like that of gorilla say gorillas when they are growing at a certain age we they become what we call silverbacks mm-hmm. the silverbacks are the most dominant ones mm-hmm. so these younger ones are sub- they actually they simply waiting for that age to come so there are age graded male changes in dominance so they achieve this and the most important thing which they can achieve remaining subordinates is so called helpers to enhance their own what in biology we call inclusive genetic fitness they can help their relatives with whom they share the genes alone they would not have been able to reproduce but if they can help their relatives to reproduce more because they share certain number of genes with the with the relatives and they gain in terms of their own genetic fitness you know long time ago in the florida scrub jay birds it has been recorded over now 50 years that a bird has a choice that it goes and makes a nest it leaves the you know parents nest so people have you know marked those birds and seen how many individuals that you know how many eggs it was able to lay right, and what right. is the uh, reproduction right. on the other hand another bird chose to remove a subordinate animal okay mm-hmm. it helped the previous parents then these parents now how many eggs they were able to raise with this helper being around Mm. and it has been found that in these systems where there was a helper the total number of eggs raised per individual is much higher right. than the individuals doing alone so since this individual shares certain number of genes with the the future generation because these are individuals which are immediately related the individual genetically gains so natural selection will favor a process so in other words there will be a natural selection for being subordinate also <laughs> Hmm. So it's uh, so these these processes in nature are very very clearly understood to us. How large and this these... uh, another thing which uh, yeah. Ankur uh, coming to the second player having something uh, up his sleeves going back to Satish also how rebellion occurs it occurs all the time in social systems in animals you know formation of alliances mm-hmm. now if you are a rank one and rank two mm-hmm. individuals this rank one sort of has a sort of predictability how rank two would behave okay but. Sir, something has happened. Like in chimpanzees, it happens. Happen most of the times. This individual does not know that second rank has already formed an alliance with the fourth or fifth. Now, once agonistic interaction happens between the two, this individual thinks only that um, the fight is going to be between rank number two. But suddenly, rank number five comes right. and helps rank number two. And in the process, suppose rank number one loses the dominance, rank number two becomes one, and five becomes rank number two now. Right. 
so suddenly there is uh, a jump in the rank you know uh, 3 and the rank number 1 goes somewhere Mayweather below or most of the times they leave the group and maybe these are group fights or they are dyadic fights most of the fights in nature are individual fights hmm. the groups very occasionally you know what we call the xenophobia principle hmm. it's only then uh, you know they see another group coming so if if there's a despotic leader or a leader with some dominant position the subordinates don't come to rescue them you will be surprised to know that most of the name is the subordinates who are made to fight <laughs> you know that dominant animal would always like go in humans. the end say you know, if you see for example the group the way the group sits hmm. i would probably come to that, that sure. later on what determines dominance but if you see the most of the injuries after group fights you see most of the injuries in the subordinate individuals not in the dominant individuals of both of the groups which are fighting right right since so their army is will fight that's interesting not not so, so we us. we don't use the word leader anymore because leader gives that human connotation as somebody who is leading right. so a <laughs> do, most dominant chimpanzee we call it an alpha male or a most dominant male and uh, we don't call it a leader because he is no leader in any sense like our leader mm-hmm. who no, is leading borrow this in the human society also because yeah. Yeah. it's true so of it's, our yeah. leaders also yeah. <laughs> better so we don't call them alpha the leader anymore but we just got a dominant dominant animal but maybe other fatal conflicts where oh, oh, it, it can be, it can very much result which, which which costs the leader the life i mean other other fatal in uh, in uh, hanuman langurs for example hmm. in you know our this this long tailed gray gray color black faced langurs you know sure image which were hanuman langurs see this is a society actually which is where there are no more males it's only usually one male mm-hmm. see most of the societies are multi male multi female societies in nature sure. but there are certain societies which are uni male multi female societies sure so what happens here in uni male multi female societies there is only one male sometimes you know another male comes you would see sometimes male bands but we call bachelor herds Hmm. bachelor so a male comes from uh, you know that that herd and there fight occurs between these two what we call the resident and the intruder male hmm. Hmm. and hmm. if the intruder male is defeated he goes back hmm. but if the resident male is defeated hmm. most most of the times it may result in death the fights can be bloody fights they killed yes they killed not only that what happens if the resident male is killed or is ousted now we don't we earlier people freely use this uh, sentence you know this language called infanticide that the new male actually goes and kills the infants of the females because they are sired by the previous male right okay right. now we have see this is too anthropomorphic thinking that you know he is thinking that the other male was the father It's why should envy. i be looking after them <laughs> what we have simple explanations that this male who comes his hormonal titers are so high and the females will not pay attention because as long as the females are lactating right they don't get the hormones to get sexually receptive right so the infants the females are attending to the infants so it is infant the process that the male takes away the infant which is object of attention of the female right. and male infants die right initially it was highly anthropomorphic this right. male goes and snatches the infants and kills them so that he can reproduce you know very goal oriented teleological you know rational explanations which you know we we say with you know is too much anthropomorphizing but it it goes to this extent but are there infanticide occurs but are there strategic games is there, is there bloodless coup as well most of them are most sure. of them are sure 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 see escalated fights are not so many they become sort of uh, ritualized fights hmm. if you see for example two birds sitting on a cliff hmm. see some of the birds nest on the cliffs which are very few places available so you see the two birds sitting you know 
close to each other you know and they just do their beaks only like this in the open if they are sitting somewhere that they might attack each other but those places where there is a danger of uh, you know life to each one of them they just do this ritualized behavior their beaks one is doing much much beak like this another is doing there only they decide they are simulating the dog game yes yes <laughs> they decide on that basis only so this ritualization in animal behavior, uh, animal world is is an enormous thing you know thousands thousands of rituals that's very interesting ankur what makes a threat credible Yeah, that's a. Uh, this is a question of debate in uh, in in game theory. If you so, I'm, let me answer this in uh, according to as a game theorist. Only. So, for a threat uh, to be credible, strictly so speaking, it has to be rational. Mm-hmm. Uh, and if it, uh, so, it is. It becomes a threat uh, in the case of in the case when uh, harm to one player also implies harm to the other player. that is when you can say that he is actually issuing a a threat uh, to the other player now for this to be uh, credible it harm to oneself should be the rational response that is uh, that's strictly speaking when uh, harm to oneself yeah should be the rational response that's strictly speaking uh, the only way that threat can be credible however you can also look at this game in a large in a in in a different space so the way we we do this in game theory is that we we don't look at this as as what's happening at every step mm-hmm. but rather look at it in, in the game as a whole and here you ask is doing a bit of or promising or claiming to do selectively harm to your oneself at a later stage in the game is that of benefit in the game as a whole So you think of the overall plan and not just the move. Yeah, so the, that's, that's the right. So the what one looks at is not just the actions that you would take at different stages in the game, mm-hmm. but rather an entire plan of actions that you have for the full game mm-hmm. when played out in time. Mm-hmm. Right. In that sense, if you if you if you look at it, that act of of threatening, even though it may seem irrational at that moment, is not at all irrational when you look at it in in the full game. In the full game, it is in fact rational to be irrational. Right. Irrational to be selectively irrational. Uh, right. Right. Okay. So, right, right. Uh, so this is uh, this this is this is uh, this is do, in fact do, the case. Do 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 harmless threats from followers to leaders work, Satish? Like how how does one reverse? So if one was to, one was to reverse hierarchies, of course, one starts thinking of things like revolutions and bloody conflicts and so on. Do does it work, Ankur? Uh, let me let me give you an example. Uh, let me make one point here. See the uh, what I mentioned was that it is important that when one player claims to do harm to oneself, it should also cause harm, harm to, to the, the other, other player. Yeah. Right. So this this does not work. This will not be true if the two players are di- uh, their interests are diametrically opposite. Mm-hmm. So if they this so they have th- to have the same goal. No. Uh, so if the cases where threats can be issued mm-hmm. is are cases where. their interests are uh, not diametrically opposite that there is some degree of collinearity in the in their interests mm-hmm. okay so mm-hmm. if it it should be the case that uh, you know hum to dobenge sanam tumko bhi le dobenge that has to be the case right uh, if it can if it is if however it's the case that they are the harm to one necessarily implies gain to the other so zero so sum game it's a zero sum game precisely so, so it works only in non zero sum games it game. works only well, in non zero sum i'm games. sure there is Uh, More to this, there yeah. are <laughs> there are nuances around there, <laughs> right, as right. is always the case in your field. But so, are there non-revolutionary reversal of hierarchies? Can there be theoretically, conceptually, historically? One can wear different lenses and think about them. Yes, uh, yes. In fact, um, reform or um, partial revolutions, what they are called, or sometimes 
revolutions from above mm. tend to be of that sort mm-hmm. so for example indian struggle for independence is given as an example of one possible example of a partial revolution oh. where in one sense power is transferred from one set of rulers to another set of rulers oh. and those who are at the bottom stay at the bottom <laughs> but the intermediate levels change right uh given especially if you look at it in caste terms right given the fact that whatever the professed ideology right the actual composition of the leaders of the nationalist movement was upper caste for example i'm just giving sure. this as an example sure so what happens is that the british are presented as a less suitable or more objectionable set of rulers than, than our set you know sure. our own people so then the, this kind of transfer of power occurs Sure. whereas for a revolution you would need an overturning you would need those at the bottom to now be on top and does so it happen as a occasionally it seems to happen but it tends to be very very unstable hmm. uh, that is because we most of the time we are exchanging one hierarchy for another hierarchy mm-hmm. and uh, that has been the persistent kind of you know holy grail that has been sought uh, a way of overturning a hierarchy without creating a new one right and although many promises are made to this effect in history we have not really found this happening where are you on that conceptually like 500 years out 1000 years out 2000 years out is it is it even you know of course one gets it at the aesthetic emotional level flat no hierarchies egalitarian um right you have spoken of the notion of culture and even if we were to leave nature behind Yes um, it depends on whether you are uh, I mean I'm putting this very crudely sure. in the interests of brevity I think it depends on whether you're a technological optimist or a technological pessimist mm-hmm. because the forms of power uh, and the forms of uh, human self destruction mm. are now so much more evolved mm. we are perfectly able to wipe ourselves out many times over mm. today we have that capability mm. it's it's a very real capability mm. um on the other hand so it's it is like it's like saying the rate of progress depends on the rate of progress of weaponry almost right and what i'm saying <laughs> is that this kind of sophisticated weaponry we have had right and the proliferation of that despite all efforts the mm-hmm. the uh, proliferation of that makes it possible for a total destruction to happen that is a much um, much more close possibility today than it was say 100 years ago and the reason ago. you bring that up satish in this context no, is this is on the one hand mm-hmm. on the other hand it is said that technology is also made for a historically unprecedented democratization mm-hmm. so for example communication technologies and so on make information flow much more uh, easy costless and so on now at the same time people are saying that precisely these changes in technology make it possible for much more efficient and invisible forms of censorship dictatorship and so on sure so forms of concentration of power um, can accompany the apparent democratization of access to things like internet things like this. so it depends on where you are if you feel that technology is doing good things it is empowering the weak more than it is empowering the strong then you believe good things will happen but on the other hand if you feel that uh, the technological rate of change and type of change is such that um, the possibilities of um, in a broad sense democratic revolutions are becoming less and less both 
both are available as systems of belief and i don't think it is possible to prove one way or the other uh, you know with a, some kind of a slam dunk kind of proof so they are both they both but remain these are all stacks right they all sit on top of each other so it depends on the way you yes. organize the market depends on the way you organize the economy depends on the way you organize the society yes i mean we are we are in this general equilibrium so you know sort of situation everything depends on everything else right it has for a while now right and um we have to then i uh, we come back to so it seems very rational things like hope optimism <laughs> and so on <laughs> which are after all very human right 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 what's the future can there be structures ankur that um that somehow don't lead to this recruitment of the subordinate uh, um for the service of the leader and so on and so forth what what is an ideal game which almost invariably leads to somewhat flat somewhat egalitarian um one of uh, in the in the four uh, categories that meva listed out the first one or two yeah th- this is uh, uh, actually responding to what satish is saying and uh, and what you are asking it is uh, it's it is not a very easy question to answer uh, simply it's, it's very easy question to ask but impossible <laughs> to answer and particularly if you are uh, looking at the future see essentially if you if i think as, again as a game theorist what is happening here is if you you have a game in which you are adding a few strategies to to both both parties that uh, what is right. currently the dominated and what is the dominant party you are adding a few strategies now when you augment the strategy space of players whether that uh, what that does to the equilibria is it depends on a whole lot of things it depends on what those strategies are it depends on how exactly are the new payoffs are relative to the other payoffs and so on. so if what happens is old equilibria do not remain need not remain equilibria anymore you get new equilibria which will uh, which will be a whole uh, lot of other uh, which will have a new character and uh, it depends on a lot of fine and print and how extreme can to... these things get like is it i mean just just purely theoretically is it possible for one person to control the whole world yeah so it uh, it 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 can it is possible it is possible why not uh, so uh, that that is possible <laughs> game theoretically it can it can even uh, you, you there are there are examples here where it is the uh, uh, where it is possible for some person to diminish the the payoffs that he is getting from one particular strategy mm-hmm. in order to get a better equilibrium in the game mm-hmm. so you know there is this uh, famous line of uh, um sharukh khan in bazigar where he says haar ke bhi jeetne wale ko bazigar kehte hain so you you actually see you can show this in a in a game where he reduces his payoff one can reduce your payoffs from a particular strategy and then but in the in the in the new game get a better uh, get a better equilibrium yeah. right so th- right. this this <laughs> this seems completely counterintuitive but it is happens so point my point here is that it's very difficult to say what uh, so tech disruptions and so on technological disruption etc what they are adding is augmenting our strategy space they are adding they are changing this the extent of information that is present i think the question players. is that does i mean obviously there are many spheres and many um, realms and many different things commingled into each other so does this lead to dominance becoming more difficult or less difficult does it that's essentially the question in a way right because there are all kinds of technological cultural social 
environmental, all kinds of factors, there's randomness, stochasticity to the whole thing. Our so, problem is that there is a lot of evidence on both sides. Mm -hmm. So it's hard to say what is the net. Sort of, there is a lot of evidence to say that domination has become easier today. There is a lot of evidence to say that domination is now difficult. The dominated are more unruly. Where are you on so, this? Um, I would like to believe, see, um, going back to rationality, and we are, in a sense, conditioned to think of a term like irrationality as a kind of fault or a deficit. Right. Uh, which actually need not be the case. Because we are working, when we speak in game theory, in the language of game theory, we are speaking it with, with very constrained notions of rationality. If you think of it in ethical terms, if you think of rationality as something that will do good for humanity, then that set is a much larger set than what we think of as rational behavior. So everything one could say, you know, in, in, the, in the Shah Rukh Khan mode, uh, one could say that everything that is great about human beings has been irrational. Hmm. And that should give us hope. But you know, when we use dominance, we almost equate it with hegemony. But they, it's possible to have dominance without hegemony, right? Or is that too naive again? That the, is the, the theory. Yes, the theory is that dominance without hegemony is very expensive and unstable. Hegemony is domination with consent. <laughs> <laughs> so that's what modern power is hegemonic. When you say that something is hegemonic, it means that it has, it rules not only by force. Force is there in the background. The modern state <laughs> is a hegemonic state. Especially a modern democratic state is a hegemonic state. Let's go to the world of monkeys. I mean, are there... See, see once again, see, the problem is our, the way we have... Argue these things. Our, the way we argue. Sure. See, I think this is wrong to put value system to judgments to this. You know, the way, for example, you have been presenting this as if there is something terribly wrong with the dominant system. No, not at all. <laughs> you, know, you know, like it's, uh, you know, hegemony or dominance or, you know, whether dominance can be eliminated or whether, you know, egalitarianism. What, See, if you start simply yeah. looking at this, that if you simply go back to nature, sure, there are ecological conditions. Mm -hmm. The systems develop as adaptations because they, again, wrong to say they help organisms. Organisms behave in certain ways and those traits get selected for. Sure. There is no group discussion they do. Sure. There is no conscious decision they take. <laughs> Those traits which are which help them survive better and reproduce better get selected for. Others get selected against. So, all so whether they are social systems yeah. or their you know predatory behaviors or sure. anti-predatory behaviors sure. or their so-called cultural traditions which are plenty in nature by the way. Sure. I mean this is this other topic sometimes which can be discussed which we can talk you know culture in nature. There is mm. a plenty of culture in nature mm. traditions of tool Jews passed on culturally, not genetically. Mm. They are passed on by learning. Mm. Individuals have to learn from others mm. and they are rare. Mm. So there are a number of these traditions, but they are adaptations. And similar are the human behaviors, the human social systems. Mm. They are also adaptations, not in that biological sense that you have to think that it has it is helping their genetic fitness. But the principle is the same. And if the principles are the same like adaptations. Take culture, for example. See, all cultural practices can very much be studied back as, as biological adaptations. As adaptive artifacts. As biological yeah. adaptations at certain times. Hmm. But even in uh, biology, 
as the ecological you know conditions change certain certain traits become what we call selectively neutral take simple example of hindus not eating beef if you look for example where did hinduism evolve indo gangetic plains and it was they were so much dependent on cow that they had to in order to protect the cow they, the humans because we have culture because sure. our culture is so strong sure. so they had to make it a cultural and ultimately a religious practice sure. to save the cow sure. okay today it has become selectively neutral because if i don't be eat beef my fitness is not reduced sure. if somebody else be eats beef his fitness is not you know Enhanced. darwinian fitness is highly increased no the trait has become selectively neutral sure our ear lobes are selectively neutral sure. in a, in birds you see in mammals if they see hear some noise immediately they go up like this you know they, sure. you know the, the pinna muscles because they sort of use them sort of antenna now these are these are selectively neutral and these selectively neutral traits they continue to exist for a long time unless they start harming so many of these human practices uh, the systems the social systems for example why don't they they change suddenly because many of them evolve as adaptations but then they become sort of neutral that they don't they don't harm or they don't add to fitness but my only point is that if we want to really understand these i am not saying that social sciences or you know these uh, say uh, cultural anthropology sociology should be biology sized no the point is that if we have the same methodology used the way we understand for example adaptation and evolution game theory you know all these interactions for example bhartri hari our great philosopher long time ago said i can understand two individuals helping each other i can understand you know what we call cooperation i can understand doing things for myself harming you what we call selfishness i can understand something costing me but helping you altruism which basically does not exist is simply old so you can call it altruism but i can never understand i doing something to to ankur that he is harmed and i am also harmed what we call spite okay now spite does not exist in animal world although we are seeing the cases of it now so if you see the game theory and ultimate interaction types among individuals cooperation both individuals benefit selfishness the actor benefits the recipient loses prevalent in nature natural selection we don't have to be very ethical or moralistic about this natural selection favors anything which is selfish yeah. because that's how natural selection is defined altruism the so called you know act which benefits others does not exist in nature we can discuss this at any other time it was seen from basically from ants to begin with all organisms who are so called making altruistic uh, behavior they are actually maximizing their fitness more than the others in they several ways at the level of the group in several ways sure and uh, spite is which which is being seen now that spiteful behavior is actually seen only under uh, those conditions where a is harming itself harming b but c gains but c happens to be somehow related either ally <laughs> of a or related to a so some somebody else an ally or uh, a kin is gaining but these are sort of behaviors which are very typically sort of human so there's no random spiteful um... yeah, i mean we it may be very much but probably it's very difficult for us to classify sure. in the animal world some behavior which we would call spite sure sure so these are see all these things the my point is simply this that even in order to understand human social systems human cultural systems it is a methodology that methodology means the any trait which is it 
what functions it has or it had under certain given conditions now those conditions change the functions would become neutral or they would become harmful they sure. have to be changed the sure. humans make conscious decisions the animals have to work through natural selection so the humans take make conscious decisions change their systems why because they find a new system is more adaptive or would be a better adapted adaptive the principle remains the same that's that's what the you know point is that what we say is that there is you cannot say that there is no continuity in nature so to think that you know the humans are really very unique individuals sure we speak language but the systems can be understood i mean they can be a very unique way of the ants organizing themselves and living with each other so it's a, it's unique in that sense it's unique in the sense that that is one thing and another is another thing so only the future what we are talking about for example hierarchical system first of all i don't think we should put any kind of value or moral judgments on a system itself okay so what's the non value judgment future in the long run is it possible for one species or one leader to dominate how large can groups be maybe oh it depends on such uh, sometimes it depends on habitat sure. sometimes it depends on species sure. there are some uh, social systems which are totally solitary for example tigers are solitary animals sure then there are family systems like for example gibbons sure. in northeast india we have they are paired for lifetime sure that's right uh, you know male female are paired just like uh, humans they are paired for life but what certain the, birds are paired for life what can the span of control be what can the span of control be for a dominant leader and how large can the group oh it be? depends these alliances keep happening all the time it may be a, a, you know in a in a monkey group my leader may last 3 years or 4 years or sometimes less sure Sure. Yeah, depends on what the dynamics are because there are number of things going on all the time. It is not simply that a hierarchy is established and it is there. Sure, sure. These low-ranking individuals are always planning strategies. Sure, sure, sure. Why don't we end with you, Satish? Will there be powerful and powerless people in the future? There will always be, right? Again, not the not not the hope response. The no, as of now, it does look like that because hmm. the past. If we take the past to be a guide to the future, then that. our past has always involved dominator and dominated um but as uh, memo was saying the starting point of our discomfort with this idea that there will always be dominator and dominated arises from the idea of equality hmm. it is because at least in the human world and the that idea you're that saying is a new idea is a 300 year old idea yes, relatively speaking idea. a new idea and as long as that idea has sway we will continue to worry about the question of whether there will be dominators and dominated sure and as far as uh, predictions and so on the our problem is i would agree almost entirely with what meva is saying except that human beings happen to be the species that have freed themselves from nature the sure. most sure. as he himself said in the beginning sure that's why nature is not really a good guide to explain human behavior sure. true true and i mean i shouldn't <laughs> be i shouldn't be saying this as a social scientist of of um, several decades but uh, Unfortunately much of our wisdom in the social sciences tends to be retrospective. Right. So after something has happened you will have all kinds of all experts explaining why, <laughs> why it had something. to happen and you know <laughs> they knew all along that it would happen but before it would happen uh, it's very hard to say because we always have history gives us so many counter examples. Sure. You give a certain this pattern I can give you a historical example of where the opposite occurred. and then it's up to you know so that's exciting and confusing that's yes, what makes it yes, fun yes yes and i think the fact that uh, human history is unpredictable 
uh, is what deeply conditions us as humans. I don't think we would continue to be humans in the sense that we recognize ourselves if our futures became predictable. Terrific. Terrific. I think that's a good note to end this on. Thanks to all of you for making it and we look forward to having you soon again. Thank you. Take care. Our pleasure. Thank, Thank you. you.